Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani. And I'm Chuck Mendenhall. And I'm Pete Carroll, and together we are Three Pack. Join us on the brand new Spotify Live app immediately after all of the biggest fights in combat sports. And also during the weigh-ins, because that's when the real drama happens. So what are you waiting for? Follow the Ring MMA show right now on our exclusive Spotify podcast feed. And come join the best community in MMA. Peace! We're out of here. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. David? Yes? A while back, I introduced a feature here at the Press Box called I Read Something. One of my favorites. Kind of a self-congratulatory feature where we get to pat ourselves <laughs> on the back for actually finishing a piece of writing. Notice, by the way, we have not actually used that feature one time since its initial rollout. Today, I would like to offer you a companion feature. Mm-hmm. I saw something. It's a new documentary called Turn Every Page. Oh, all right. Comes out December 30th. It is about the relationship between LBJ biographer and American treasure Robert Caro mm-hmm. and his longtime editor Robert Gottlieb, mm-hmm. who has edited all the Cairo books going back to The Power Broker. Now, for people who don't know, Bob Cairo is 87 years old. He is that guy within the world of books. His LBJ volumes are books that just about everyone buys and a handful of very successful people with a lot of bandwidth are able to read all the way through. Mm -hmm. And I think we would say a guy in book writing who has the rare privilege of having all of his books be of a piece. Yeah. From the power broker through all the way, right? There's not like an old Bob Caro book. You're like, well, he was really finding his footing there. Yeah. Kind of the odd one out. There's no, there's no weird first movie, first book for him. He's almost been a finished product for his entire book writing career. It's true. I mean, and I think in some sense, it's like, it's a dream job, right? I mean, you got to have to find the dream subject, something that would keep your interest throughout a lifetime. But I think most of us if you know given a crystal ball and a healthy advance would choose that sort of success and that sort of ability to to process to write to to think you know about one subject in a really big way over a really long period of time so Cairo is the writer the editor in this documentary is Bob Gottlieb 91 years old former editor-in-chief of Knopf and Simon & Schuster before that. He also edited The New Yorker between Mr. Sean and Tina Brown. How do you describe Bob Gottlieb's stature in the world of book publishing? 
there's nobody like Bob Gottlieb. I mean, there was a whole bunch of, there's a whole generation of sort of, you know, grand names, men and women of publishing of which he was a part, but I guess, but it always sort of seemed to stand separate from them. You never, you didn't hear, uh, I didn't think of him in the same breath as, you know, Sonny Meta or something like that. The people who were just like brilliant and, and, and intensely talented, but Robert Gottlieb, um, Bob Gottlieb, for to those of us that know him, I've never, and I don't know the guy at all, but he's got what, but there's, isn't that a great thing that all the, all the professional Roberts in America, mm-hmm. we just call Bob and we're speaking at the, speaking about them at any length. Um, Robert Gottlieb is like, I don't know. He's like a, he's like a, he's a statue. He's like, he's, he's like the name is, is, is bigger. The legend is bigger than the person, which is really a, an unusual thing in a world as, as sort of specific as book publishing. Um, and obviously magazine publishing as well, but he is the editor's editor. He's like the consummate guy. He was like, well, like you're right. He was at Simon and Schuster. He's best known as the editor, editor in chief of Knopf, but he, but he, he discovered what catch 22 was his first book, I guess, which is my first favorite good book, uh, in my lifetime. Um, and, and yeah, just sort of went onward from there. I'm, 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 I'm really interested to see this, um, this documentary because uh, to those of us that have been there and I think to anyone that's spent any time as a writer, I think those sorts of writer editor relationships are all incredibly interesting, probably much more so to our generation and those before than those now when not ever, even the best writers don't necessarily have, you know, really hands-on editors. Movies directed by Gottlieb's daughter, Lizzie. It's a fascinating study just in visual contrast, Cairo turning up to work and, in a suit, looking very natty, even as he's writing alone, Gottlieb turning up for the interview in sweats, <laughs> which is great. And, you know, I would call this a good documentary, not a great documentary, but for the people who are like you and me, who are fascinated in with writing and books, this has some of the most interesting stuff I have ever seen about being an editor uh-huh. and the process of editing, which, as you say, is kind of a lost art form at this point in history. Here's what Gottlieb says of Caro. He does the work. I do the cleanup. Then we fight. Here's an example of their fights as they were editing and writing these books. Sometimes I'm looking for an adjective. I make a whole list. But if he overuses them, it doesn't read well. We've had some real fights about sections that he's wanted to cut out. It was not that I was trying to tear his bleeding heart out of his chest. They would have these three or four hour sessions in Gottlieb's mm-hmm. Knopf office, sitting next to each other, fighting over everything from a paragraph that seemed to go on too long to a semicolon, mm-hmm. the whole riff in the doc about semicolons and how to use them properly. There's even <laughs> a great scene too in here where they're actually, we actually get to see them editing together and it's preceded by them wandering around the Knopf offices looking for a pencil so that the, they can write the remarks in the margins. And it can't be a mechanical pencil. It must be a regular pencil. <laughs> Imagine if we wandered around the ringer mm. trying to find a regular pencil. That would mm-hmm. take a while. A couple of quotes about editing I wanted to hit you with from Gottlieb. He says, editors have to be cruel in order to be kind. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a really interesting yeah. remark. Well, I think it's important to get as an editor to go in with the foreknowledge that you're going to be perceived as cruel, right? There's a re- there's a reason why they, or that phrase 
about editing is kill all your babies, right? It's a, it's your darlings, yeah, or your darlings. So yeah, it's it's a it's being edited is feels malicious, you know, especially when you're working with a new person or you're new to the craft or whatever else. Um, but you have to be honest, you know, as an editor, you have to you have to. I mean, they're they're paying for your or you're being paid for your opinion on, on this thing, right? So you. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a, that's a really good line. How many times in your career have you gotten a piece back in track changes mode Mm -hmm. and you've seen all the lines crossed out and you absolutely feel like crap for the next 20 minutes? Oh yeah. I always thought I would grow out of that stage. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to get this piece back. Naturally, there are going to be comments because I didn't write it (laughs) absolutely perfectly the first time out. Uh-huh. And I will take those comments like the adult I am and I will run them through my brain and I will write an even better piece and I will be thankful at the end, Well, which is all true except for that first 20 minutes where I'm so pissed off. They should have a track changes mode that's specifically for the editor author relationship wherein you only see one change at a time. Like you open the thing and it's just like change number one or edit number one and you can be like, yeah, okay. And you have never have any idea how many edits there are left mm. because it's something that's saying all the red ink, right? I mean, if you saw and that's a different thing in the modern world. I mean, you can see there's certainly manuscripts that are edited, you know, by hand within an inch of their life. Um, but yeah, just looking at and seeing that, that many, cause but, you know, editors now will, will are doing copy editing and line editing and kind of big think editing at the same time. Um, but yeah, it, it is it's hard. It's hard to get past it. Gottlieb in the movie calls editing a service job, saying, I am helping the writer realize their own vision. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to change the book or the piece of writing into something it isn't. He says, that's where tragedy lurks. But there's an interesting catch to that, which is that Gottlieb himself, as he's happily admits in the movie, he has a big ego. <laughs> so I am sublimating myself to the writer's vision. Yeah. But as an editor, I also have a big ego so that if I make these changes, I know I'm right. Uh huh. I know how to fix this. I know what can make this better. I thought that was an interesting balancing act. That is really interesting. I mean, he's not uh, going in saying you're a service, you know, you have a service job, I think is is really important, right? I mean, that, so well, I mean, listen, there's great editors who are, I mean, you know, everybody knows the legend of like Gordon Lish, just like rewriting Raymond Carver's short stories, like line Mm -hmm. by line, you know, until it's like just a a totally new invention. Um, That's what some people think of as editing, but but you're right. I mean, but he's right in what he says. You are, you have, it is a supplementary role, not necessarily a subordinate role, but it is, you know, um, you know, most, most, very, very seldom would, would there be a book in his, on his desk that he had to edit that would not have been published by somebody else. Right. So you have to sort of go in with that awareness or there was an auction for this book or like, you know, this is an author this, that I, that I had to really try to get. Um, but then at that point, it's almost an obligation to make it better. Right. It's not just that you have the, the, the confidence that you, that the ego that you can make it better. It's, I fought for this book and now it's my job to make it the best book it can be. Gottlieb has this great line about literary people. He says, anyone can be adorable. 
not everyone can be industrious with results. <laughs> as soon as I heard that, I wanted to get that sign made for my home office here. Industrious with results? And over adorability. Because yeah. how many times have you and I been tempted to be adorable, either in person in the office or in a little note we're sending to our editor where we're pitching a piece of writing? Adorable is easy, right? Winning, being winning is easy for most people. But then actually sitting down and being industrious and doing what it takes to deliver that adorable vision that you have pitched and you have given off, mm -hmm. that's hard. <laughs> that's that's where the rubber meets the road. I'll just take adorable personally, but I think you you're are. right. Is that work in <laughs> podcasting adorability? Yeah. <laughs> Industriousness. Maybe kind of a writer thing. Yeah, um, maybe so. Like I said about this doc, I'm in the three-star Roger Ebert zone here. I love the stuff about editing. I would have liked more about their battles in the LBJ books. Because just judging by the length of those things, I'm not sure how many editing battles Robert Cairo actually lost <laughs> when he was delivering those yeah. things. It's supposed to be a three-book series. It is at least a five-book series. Uh, there's also scenes in this movie where Ethan Hawke has been brought on to read passages from The Power Broker, just to give you an idea of Cairo's prose. Wow. I like having Cairo's prose read to me. Not sure Ethan Hawke is anything but a kind of a very, very strange distraction in terms of reading it. But if you're like us, I think you'll find many things to like in the documentary, Turn Every Page. And as always, David, I'm just proud to say I watched something. Coming up in the press box, more drama with Elon Musk and Twitter. How should we be covering it? Plus, the old Argentinian soccer star still got it. Notes from watching an unbelievable World Cup final and the secret ways that books get on the New York Times bestseller list. All that and more in the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers, and happy holidays. Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, producer Eduardo Ocampo, sitting in for Erica here. David, I know this is going to shock you, but there was a lot of news coming out of Twitter over the last couple of days. <laughs> Big news. Tell me more. Well, let's start last Thursday when Twitter and Elon Musk suspended a bunch of journalists. And this was a bold-faced names kind of list. New York Times' Ryan Mack, Donnie O'Sullivan of CNN, Keith Olbermann, Washington Post Drew Harwell, Micah Lee of The Intercept, Aaron Rupar, who used to be at Vox, now at Substack, all suspended from Twitter. What did they do? Well, the day before, that is Wednesday, Twitter and Elon Musk had suspended the count called Elon Jet. At Elon Jet. This is the account run by a college student who uses publicly available information to track Elon Musk's plane. Mm-hmm tell you where it's landing and posting that information on Twitter. So Twitter decides after Musk had declared the opposite that Elon jet can no longer exist on Twitter. That's it. There is not going to be any more doxing real time location info. Musk said, especially 
real-time location info that involves Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. So that happened on Wednesday. And then all these journalists were suspended. Yeah. And the reason was that they had reported on the Elon Jet account or tweeted in some way about the controversy. Yeah. And Musk was arguing that just by talking about this thing, they were doxing him mm -hmm. by extension, I guess. Yes, that is that is correct, as I as as I know it to be. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, super just incredibly problematic uh, in terms of the way Musk is making rules and, and running Twitter. I mean, I'll set aside the free speech stuff because I, I don't think that <laughs> irony is particularly salient here. It's certainly not going to be like a solution. Pointing it out won't be a solution to any of the problems. Um, but I think the most generous way you can look at Elon Musk's decision-making process over the past week is that, well, if you want to be super generous, A, he was real honestly and deeply concerned for the safety of his child right and that and that sort of it served as a wake-up call all parents gonna relate to that to some extent but then that regardless of how honest he was about or how you know honest with himself he was about what the new regime the new rules were going to be that he is so sort of um myopically focused on a certain segment of twitter that he overprescribed, shall we say, his new rules, uh, test drove his new rules on, uh, on you know, a journalism, a journalist class that was just doing their job. You know, right? A journalist class in this case that was covering him, whether or not criticizing okay, right, I'll him. Say, yes. So I'll say the ungenerous way is that he he was using this whole thing. He used this whole thing as a front to to kick journalists who he didn't like the coverage of off of Twitter, right? I mean, I guess I should have said that up front. Um, and now he's let a lot of them back on, which is, like, you know, I don't know if that's evidence that uh, he wasn't expecting the pushback that he got or if it was this was the plan all along. Obviously, the length of suspension was unknown at the time of the suspension, and he left the length up to a public vote at one point, which he seemed to abide by. But all that's to say, he, if he did, if he's not just capriciously like kicking people he doesn't like off of Twitter because he has the power to do it and people that talk shit about him, um, then it's, then we go back to the, the, my, the, the myopic, uh, example of he's, I mean, the myopic thing I said before, where he's just so focused on a certain thing that he can't help, but, you know, fumble the, the implementation of these new rules. I mean, you did a very good and, fair job of laying out the door number one and door number two there, but he is almost certainly capriciously kicking people off Twitter. I mean, just look at this list. Yeah, people. it's a little bit, there's a little bit of the, I mean, I hate that Donald Trump is a frame of reference for everything, and I don't want to compare them simply because they share a certain portion of their fan base, but there is a lot of like, he couldn't possibly be doing the thing he's obviously doing because why on earth would he do that that you remember from the Trump days, right? And you retroactively talk yourself into 3D chess. Oh, he was distracting from another thing and you did the, you know, whatever. But it just seems so 
the the the, the almost the near certain reality of what Elon Musk is doing is it makes sense on its own, but it also just makes so little sense in terms of end goals. You know, it's 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 kind of mind boggling. And as you mentioned, these journalists get suspended, and then Musk puts up a Twitter poll, which most people use for comic purposes. Yeah. Not to decide policy at a big tech company. 59% of people voted that the suspension should be lifted immediately. And then the suspensions of the journalists were lifted. Mm -hmm. So this is a very, very important issue about security, about doxing. But if enough people vote for it in a Twitter poll, then the issue isn't that important anymore. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he tweeted, he had a Twitter poll today about whether or not he should step down as the CEO of Twitter. I mean, and, <laughs> guess, and guess what the result was? Yeah. Well, no, I think he made a comeback. I think, well, we'll see. I don't know what the numbers are at the time of recording, but you know, I don't know if, do you, I mean, do you, do you do a Twitter poll that where you, where you end up having to do the thing that you didn't really want to do so that now for forever after you can put up fake put, put up twitter polls that you gimmick to get the answer that you want and everybody's like well you know there was that one time you got the bad result i know um, we're not supposed to talk, say the name donald trump here again but this has a real you know oh, look at that look at that one poll over there that one thing yeah yeah no i mean it, it, it's the 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 first poll the poll about the, about you know well not actually it wasn't the first poll the first poll had too many answers and nothing got a majority so he ran it again but the, but the first meaningful poll which invited you know which which led to bringing some of those journalists back on onto twitter um i think it maybe in his head allowed him to look magnanimous or made made him more more importantly i think allowed him to look impartial you know these rules had to be made but i'm a man of the people this is vox popular or whatever like I'm, I'm i'm letting you letting everyone else decide and also sort of washing your hands of it um but it was uh, it all just seemed everything from his takeover to now is a unified narrative of Elon Musk Twitter drama, which has basically swallowed the entire site, at least from where we're sitting. Obviously, you get certain, you know, your fo the focus on your timeline depends a lot on what you're interested in looking at. But... um it's just, it's all Twitter. I mean, it's all Elon drama. It's all Twitter. It's all this self-referential stuff. And if you want to, you know, make Twitter newsworthy, if you want the name Twitter to be trending and not just the source of the trends, I guess this works. You know, if you want your own name to be out there, I guess this works. You know, no press is bad press, et cetera. But if you want Twitter to be, to grow into anything, then... The most basic thing of all is you can't just be a, it can't just be a self-referential, you know, sinkhole. I'm going to use Donald Trump's name one more time in this segment because I saw a tweet. I think it was from Dave Weigel a while back that noted that a lot of the junky content that used to amount to Trump said a thing mm -hmm. that we would do when Donald Trump was president has now been converted to Elon tweeted a thing. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is we are covering, and I realize the irony of saying this in a segment devoted to Elon Musk and Twitter drama, but 
he is doing things. We are giving him attention by covering every single tweet, just like we did with Donald Trump. Uh-huh. And I would say, just like with Trump, there is this question that hovers over all of it because it's not that it's not news when he does these things. Yeah. But if he is doing it, at least in part to get attention for Elon Musk, should we be just diving on every single tweet and discussing every policy prescription that lasts 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever it was and be giving him that kind of constant attention? Should we like as as like as a journalist, what would be the obligation? Is that the question? I think so. Or just or just or just what would be, what, what what feels right in this case? Because I think a lot of it comes down to what do you think is news? Well, yeah, I mean, in some ways, this is just like the, the like a pure distillation of the Internet, right? Where it's just like these are there are very, very major free speech issues on why I hate you. I don't want to use that term, but you know, I mean, there are very important like journalism issues that are on the one hand and on the other hand, it's like the mod on the message board is acting like a dick. Right. So, I mean, it's (laughs) like the most sort of insular web based nonsense at all. The stuff that you would, that is may or may not be necessary. I mean, important to report, but certainly not that anybody would ever, read you know unless it was a beautiful magazine feature or something like that so i mean it's it it it, it's a tough call i do think that journalism broadly defined whatever quote-unquote journalism is is in an odd place here because i don't because i think that as with trump there's only so much sort of you know rallying support for the greater good of journalism that is that will ever particularly work regardless of how good the villain is and in some sense it's just keep your nose to the grindstone and do the job but i think that um this is a particularly strange place that we that journalists i think find themselves in josie duffy rice had a great tweet last week that i sent you or she said, Twitter has been filling in for a robust journalism infrastructure for a long time, and that is bad. She goes on. But there's very, I can't, there, I can't imagine really many other, I mean, what, what another example would be of a general, like, social media ban being so kind of cataclysmic for a, the career of someone in a specific profession, you know? Uh, it, it could be, you know, if Taylor, if Taylor Lorenz never gets back on Twitter, I mean, presumably she'll be fine and continue to be employed. But that is like a major that 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 is a like major shift in her, not just like public facing identity, but but her her life. You know, um, obviously you, there's workarounds and everything else. But I'm just saying, like that's to to not the 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 specter of Elon Musk continually knocking people, taking people off Twitter because he doesn't like what they say changes the. Well, the, 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 the metaphorical algorithm entirely. I want to bring up another question that goes directly to your point about infrastructure. So Musk and Twitter suspend these reporters and their websites, their media organizations issue those statements. We are very, very concerned about this. We strongly object to these baseless suspensions. 
Yet the media organizations themselves, as Jeremy Barr and Sarah Ellison pointed out in a Washington Post piece, kept tweeting during the whole thing. Like filling Twitter with content. Even though their their reporters had been taken off Twitter for what they thought were unjust reasons. Mm -hmm. Now that's an interesting one to me too. I had not exactly thought about that, but we, we see this in journalism sometimes. If you, David, are covering a wrestling promotion and the wrestling mm-hmm. promotion says we are denying David all press access, all credentials going forward because he has violated our rules and it's all bullshit. The ringer isn't going to be like, okay, we'll send Brian Curtis to cover the wrestling promotion instead. Mm-hmm. The proper response to that is we've got our guy and he's going to go back and we're not going to cover you or at least cover you on a day-to-day basis until you put our guy back in there. But these news organizations are so reliant on Twitter, or at least so enmeshed with Twitter, whatever the actual translation of clicks is, you know, to tweets that they just still tweeting. Hey, mm-hmm. so here's some stories we wrote. Here's some yeah. more tweets. Here you go. I thought that was really interesting. And I didn't see a lot of grappling with that because it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, we've still got our stories to try to publicize. Yeah. It's, 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 it is sort of an impossible position. Um, we've had these conversations, we have had similar conversations when people have been, you know, uh, suspended for tweets that they've made suspended by journalism, by, by whatever outlet they're working for, for things that they've tweeted. Obviously it's a very different thing, but you're always walking this fine line between wanting, you know, free speech or whatever it is, what, you know, like, but, and the self-promotion inherent in, in social media and everything else. And, and just sort of trying to, well, I'll say, I'll say it a different way as a, as a newspaper, as a magazine, as whatever you are, both in the position of having to stand up for these great, for the greater good, for these absolute values of, of journalism and democracy and everything else. And also like not have every day be a shitstorm so that you can continue to do your job. Right. You, I mean, there has to be some, you know, grown up in the room aspect to your, to how you kind of, set your policy and it, it's it's in, it's incredibly difficult and especially difficult now because it's just it, because there's this chaotic there's this element of it right there's this unpredictability the elon musk poll i'm looking at it right now david the final results are in should i step down as head of twitter i will abide by the results of this poll musk tweeted yes 57.5% no 42.5% So he lost his own poll. Oh, my gosh. One more bit of drama here. This was on Saturday. You mentioned Taylor Lorenz of the Washington Post. She was working on a story about Musk with her Post teammate, Drew Harwell. This is a story you alluded to about Musk's security team having a run-in with an alleged stalker. Mm -hmm. came out of what he said was the Elon Jet thing. Lorenz and Harwell would report that police see no link between those two things. Lorenz, in reporting this story, reached out to Musk on Twitter for comment. And then when she checked back, found out that her account had been suspended. Yeah. What apparently got her suspended was she put up with a tweet with her handles on Mastodon, Instagram, and other competing social media platforms. 
and Twitter <laughs> put in a rule that that was no good anymore. Yeah. That you could not point to your platform, your, your profiles elsewhere. Musk tweeted, casually sharing occasional links is fine, but no more relentless advertising of competitors for free, which is absurd in the extreme. They added that policy and then deleted the policy almost immediately from their website. Musk explaining that he had not conducted a poll <laughs> to find out if Twitter users agreed with that policy change. And he would he was sorry and wouldn't do that again without conducting a poll. Yeah. I mean, just incredibly, in, uh, the polling thing is just going to continue to be bizarre. Um, cause it's like the fallback plan. It's the excuse. It's the rationalization, the post rationalization and the rationalization for what's going to come. Um, maybe we should all be doing polls. Should we, should we just do that here? Just like, I'm sorry about sure. my take last week. I hadn't conducted a poll yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just very strange, right? I mean, here's the thing here. There's a lot of, here's the things in here. He can do whatever he wants with Twitter. He owns Twitter, right? I mean, that's that's not really in dispute. Um, I said semi seriously a few weeks ago that I part of me wondered if he if he was actually trying. You know, if if you go with the I, with the with the notion that he didn't actually want to buy Twitter by the time he was sort of forced to buy it, part of me wondered if he was trying to just tank it in some sort of too big to fail scheme to like you know, make it clear how necessary a public utility it was and force the government to buy it somehow. I, I don't know. But there's, you know, he could do whatever he wants to with it. Um, he's going to get incredible amounts of pushback, though, because of how significant it is to so many people, right? I mean, it, people were generally happy. People complained about it before. But this is the same thing with every website, you know? It's like you complain about the navigation bar on the ringer.com until we redesign the website, and you're like, I can't find anything, you know? I mean, it's just, this is the way we interface with the internet. Um, and so part of, you know, you think that he's he would be aware of it, and that's why it may, I think people would go to the kind of conspiracy theory that he's doing some of this on purpose. I don't know. I don't know what the plan is. But he can do whatever he wants. I just don't know that... It, he could, man, I don't even know how to say it. He can do it. He can do whatever he wants, but it's you can't. You have you have to be self aware enough to know what the what the reaction is going to be. You can't just after the everything just do things and say, "Hey, I'm going to do this poll." I mean, you might want to kick all the journalists who say shit about you off Twitter, but if you do it, you better you gotta you you should probably you know keep stick to your word you know just keep build the wall and and keep your kingdom safe or whatever it's just you have to know what people are going to see when you do this stuff and just making up a thing about how it was your sharing location and whatever else just doesn't it doesn't hold water and you have to understand that self-rationalization doesn't work for everybody else it's just really hard for one person to do what he's doing <laughs> Even and if certainly the person this we're trying person. to do it well and not yeah. just drive everybody nuts. We're all going to be driven by, by our egos and by our petty grievances and everything else. That's a part of what makes us human. Thankfully, there's not a lot of operations of this significance where there's one person in charge, and thankfully it's not him, you know, specifically. Coming up in 30 seconds, the old guy still got it. Brian and David's match report from the World Cup final. Plus, how does the New York Times figure out which books are bestsellers and how do authors and publicists 
contrived to get their books on the list. But first, David, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Senior nominees to at the Press Box Pod, where they are always, always gratefully received. This week's runner-up went to many tweets sent during that amazing World Cup final between Argentina and France. Uh, It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, I'm supposed to watch insert terrible NFL player here, play quarterback after this. (laughs) Thanks to Michael T. By the way, I think Zach Wilson was the runaway winner in that tweet. But this week's winner, David, comes from our pal, Adam Zalanka. Some sad news from the world of streaming. Netflix had a series called Blockbuster about life at the last Blockbuster video store. Well, the show has been canceled. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, can't believe this is the second time in history that Netflix put Blockbuster out of business. (laughs) Thanks to Adam for that one. If your tape is already three days late, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And 1, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Ugg. Y'all know Ugg is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think Ugg season is only during the colder months of the year. Au contraire, you're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from Ugg. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at Ugg.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. All right, the notebook dump. We got to talk about the World Cup final. Because this, my friend, is the podcast where people come for soccer news. The Press Box. Yes, it is. Two lifelong fans of the sport talking to you here today after a fantastic final. Let me tell you something. The best part about that match for people like you and me was you didn't have to know anything about soccer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To to be into that. It was like England, France. It's like, I get it. (laughs) I understand right away Mm -hmm. what the stakes are. I understand how cool this is. I understand how exciting this is. Then you get 
a match that is tied through regulation at the end of regulation. I should say that is tied after extra time and you go to, you go to the shootout. It just, it was fantastic. Strong old guy still got it vibes for Argentina's Lionel Messi, who is 35. But wasn't it cool to have an old guy still got it versus does this young guy already have it vibe going on during a sporting event? Yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's you know, LeBron's been an old guy, so got it for a little while. But it, it, Tom Brady, you know, but but it was it was definitely nice. Killian Mbappe, 23, had an absolutely incredible match for France. I felt a little bit like this was the Brady-Mahomes Super Bowl, at least as it was set up to be, that we didn't quite get Mm -hmm. because Patrick Mahomes didn't have an offensive line that could block for him. Our teammate Brian Phillips uh, tweeted this. He said, if you're looking for an American sports analogy, it's LeBron versus MJ in a double double overtime finals game seven, and they go for 60 and 50 respectively. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it was really clear. I mean, this happens every World Cup, every Olympics, whatever. You know, you, you can watch people watching soccer. Um you know, with some dedication for the first time in their life, right? We all have family members and friends who sit down and watch a game from start to finish. And, you know, a a third of the way through, you start hearing the same thing. It's just like, oh, now I understand why everybody likes this, right? (laughs) Um, And this one was just, like you said, storyline-wise, just totally blown out. And and I think part of what makes it really incredible is it doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't neatly glom on to some other American sports parallel, right? It, 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 those things are clear, and yet it's still very much its own thing. And, and it was just incredible to watch. How often, do you, how often in sports do you watch a thing where the announcers are saying, this is the greatest whatever we're watching of all time, and it's kind of, as far as I know, correct? Like, yeah, I mean, like, it's hard to imagine a, you know... I mean, how many points would LeBron have to score in game seven of the NBA finals for people to be saying this is the greatest finals performance <laughs> of all time? A hundred? I mean, like, what, like 50 points? Would people be saying that out loud in real time? Yes. I mean, I feel sports Twitter is a very cheap date. And if you turn on any game that is remotely compelling and has a lot of scoring and goes into OT, you will get a lot of football is great. I love this. This is the best thing I ever watched. Mm-hmm. And then six weeks later, you go, what What was that again? It was like a Boise State triple overtime game. Like, what, what, what happened? This was one of the ones that truly justified it. Yeah, and it's not, I'm not talking, we're not, obviously you're not disagreeing with me, but it's not sports Twitter. I mean, this is like the announce team and yes. the studio team were all just like. It was almost all, yeah, all really. yeah. They went to they did that thing where they just kind of bounced out of the booth and went to the Rob Stone and the studio mm-hmm. team on Fox uh, between periods, and it was almost like nobody knew what to say other than I can't wait to watch the rest of this. Yeah, because it's going to end. And it's funny I, we, I was watching it with my wife, and at the very end, it almost felt anticlimactic. I think because everybody was so tired. Yeah, and it was almost like the celebration on the field, which is usually like the most exciting you know big capper to a huge sporting event it almost it was almost muted because 
the match itself was so exciting. Mm-hmm. And so f- every moment felt so freighted. Uh, one TV note for you that was funny. So Fox showed this here in the States in the morning. Started at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10, p- 10 a.m. Eastern. Yeah, we had it at a very humane time over here. You should try it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, this is world sport, David. We're all coming together. This is awesome. Oh, wait. Fox has the NFL. Yeah. Starting exactly three hours later. And this match goes on and on and on. And all of a sudden, I was saying, you know, because I had my my things to do for the day. Watch World Cup final. Watch Cowboys Jags. (laughs) And I'm looking at you got to see the two greatest sporting events of their (laughs) of all time. I know. And I'm like, wait, this starts in like 15 minutes. And I know I know France, Argentina is a much, much, much bigger deal in Mm -hmm. the history of everything. But. If we're talking about paying the bills, NFL football is what pays the bills. It was, yeah. Uh, the transition between the two is incredible too, because the is the greatest, the greatest soccer game of all happened. And like I said, they were saying this out loud, and everybody's reacting to it. And then almost as quickly as the you know <laughs> ball went goes into the net, Rob Stone saying, "Due to our NFL obligations, we'll we have to go, but this will continue on FS1." You know, and <laughs> first of all, due to our NFL obligations is was like it's so funny that I, I mean no com- no complaint about Rob's delivery there. It's just so funny that due to our NFL obligations has some sort of like salience in, in the modern world, right? Everyone's just like, "Oh yeah, they have to show the game. We understand how the contracts work." Um, but but yeah, I mean it was. It was a very, very uh, quick changeover. It was hilarious. See, uh, we'll we'll continue with our FS1. (laughs) Some more post-game if anyone's interested. A few American viewers want more. I mean, I understand, but it's important because it's the NFL obligation. I think it's the obligation to show the game, right? I mean, I think even most football fans, American football fans would have been like, yeah, we can just, we can hang out here for 25 more minutes, you know, get some interviews. Just gets a real perspective, something. But no, we had to go see the Cowboys get beat. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm just, I was so mad yesterday. There's, there's being mad on Twitter, that performative anger you do as a fan. Mm-hmm. And then there's just being mad inside your house. Yeah. I was being mad inside my house yesterday. And I was just <laughs> pissed off. When I'm pissed off, what do I do? I write a podcast. That's what I do. <laughs> Couple shows. Notes, couple notes from Twitter for you. Uh, did you catch any of the tweets that were going out during the World Cup final that said, hey, uh, hey, soccer's boring, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you guys think of that? Are we are we still fighting that battle? Were there soccer trolls amongst us yesterday? We're like, I'm not watching this crap. They're only going to score six total goals in regulation. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, yes. I mean, there are still people saying well, there's this. There's somebody on Twitter, sure. There's somebody on Twitter saying everything. Well, I mean, I, I think there were people texting me, you know, I had friends in group chats that were like, I still don't get the appeal. What's it, you know, like what? whatever, you know? People but, were out? But those people were watching it. I think that's the thing is that soccer is still on such a sort of cultural awareness curve in the United States, Luddites that we are, that like, that there or it's not just new people are exposed to it, to it every game. It's like potential audience members are exposed to every game. I mean, new audience members in every, in every big game. 
Mm-hmm. And so people are grasping at how to comprehend it, who normally would be like, I mean, listen, you throw a big Super Bowl party, half the people there are just there for the commercials, right? But they don't sit around saying just like, what a barbaric sport. Like, why does anybody <laughs> want to watch this? You know, and they go, they go eat chips and they talk to the other people who don't care about the game. It's just that it's this sort of novelty, you know? It's just like, it's, it's, it's somewhere between kind of earnest potential fans being one over on one end and on the other end, it's like old people hearing rap music for the first time, you know? <laughs> it's like, we, we, it's both varieties, are pe- both, both types are people who feel obligated to have an, an open opinion, whereas they wouldn't in another sport. I go back and forth on the, the idea of freezing cold takes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm like, eh, that was a terrible take and should be held up for mocking and ridicule. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think, yeah, really, we're really going to ding the sports writer for that one. Well, there was one during yesterday's match that really justifies the form. It was by Josina Anderson, who's an American football expert for CBS. She tweeted during the match, I'm still waiting for Kylian Mbappe to impress me in this World Cup. Yes, he attracts defenders, but speed and scoring potential are not enough. You have to purposefully dribble with directive control, create for yourself, and thus be a constant actual threat to the net throughout the tourney. (laughs) After that tweet, I mean, within about 15 to 20 minutes, Kylian Mbappe had what a friend texted me was one of the best 30 minutes by a player in the history of world sport. World sport? World sport. Okay, so we can we can narrow it down to your British friends as they're <laughs> oh, this mystery yeah. person. <laughs> the whole former British Empire, perhaps included, but yeah. I mean, it was it was one of those where you're just like, oh wow. Mm. Yeah. Didn't hold up. Let's talk about books, David. You sent me this Esquire story by Sophie Vershbo about the New York Times bestseller list. Uh-huh. Title is The Murky Path to Becoming a New York Times Bestseller. Yep. Before we get into that freighted headline and all the reporting Vershbo did that went into it, we know that every author, every publisher wants their books to sell well. What is the value, the actual value within publishing to have a book on the New York Times bestseller list? Um. Well, in some ways, it's more important than ever, right? Because shelf space is at such a premium, and and no matter where you go, there's a shelf, there's a whole bay. It's the New York Times bestsellers in the airport bookstores. You know, that's in some of those stores. That's seventy five percent of the bookshelf. You know, is the New York Times bestsellers or, or wherever they're going to do it. So to have a sort of you know the one scale that people care about, right? I mean, there's the fact that it stood the test of time. Whereas, you know, most other traditional forms of rating have gone, have sort of been, have been toppled uh, by whatever modern contrivance, the New York Times book review, I mean, the New York Times bestseller is still, still, you know, is really significant. I mean, the New York Times, in general, we're in a much different place, right? I mean, I don't know about the bestseller list. I, I know, I mean, I, there, there was a time not that long ago where you would get tipped off that you were going to be on the bestseller list and start printing books immediately. If you were, if you were, well, one of the most extremely fortunate, someone who didn't expect to be there that sort of popped onto the list and whatever, it could not only change your fortunes dramatically, but it could also put you in a really tough spot because if you have 5,000 copies of a book in circulation and suddenly there's demand for 50, 
it's going to take, you know, two weeks to get them to the, to print them and get them to the stores. It's a weird thing. But just as a frame, I mean, if you knew that your book, even a book that was already some measure of success was going to pop up in the top of the New York Times bestseller list, that could mean that you pushed print on a hundred thousand copies that, you know, the second you find out it could, it's a huge, huge deal. Um, but you know, it, it means different things now. So Verspo notes in her piece that we don't know how the New York Times calculates its bestseller list. And this is on purpose. Yeah. Because the New York Times doesn't want people to monkey with the numbers or be able to game the list. Is that right? Well, that would be their argument. And there's some validity to it, right? I mean, even if you were a certain sort of fruit, you know, uh, information absolutist or whatever that like everything should be public knowledge. You can understand the framework of an argument that like, I mean, the reason why the recipe for KFC fried chicken is a trade secret is not because they have an ingredient that no one's ever heard of. Right. It's because that like, it's actually probably very easy to reproduce, but we just want to make sure that no one else knows exactly how we do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Something and so he compares it to the formula for Coca-Cola. Yeah. You can guess exactly. what the ingredients are, but you don't know exactly what the measurements are, how Coke puts together a can of Coke. And part of the deal is that it's small sample size, right? I mean, I think they do use BookScan, although they denied it. I mean, there are, you know, these public, I mean, the, these, these big databases that count book sales and stuff like that. But like, I think that they probably figured out a way to do it. I mean, they figured out a ranking system that works or at least works for them that is not some sort of actual representation, I mean, it, it representation, not some a- actual counting of all the books that were sold. It is a sample size that they that is very functional. And if you, and it's probably small enough that if you knew how to do exactly what they were looking at, yeah, you could gimmick the system, right? So that would be what the argument is for keeping them secret. Also, it would diminish it. I mean, I don't think it's that this isn't some sort of like, free, like, you know, some open records argument or whatever. But if you knew exactly how, how they tallied the numbers, it's not just that the mystery is interesting. It's that like the majesty is interesting, right? It's, it seems like it's more than, it's more than an accumulation of numbers. It is a, it's alchemy, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 it's whatever they do to get it impart some sort of deeper significance. This is like when we were kids and you realized that the Nielsen ratings weren't calculated by this magic machine that knew what channel everybody's television was on. Which seemed totally plausible and still seems totally plausible. Like, how is it not plausible? But anyway. <laughs> yeah, you take a sample size of people and say, ask what they watch, and then you figure out from there mm-hmm. a scale of what people are watching versus other shows. Mm-hmm. First post says has a source that tells her the Times data sources, at least what we think are the Times data sources, include Amazon, uh, a distributor for box stores like Target and Walmart, and Hudson News, which we see in every airport, uh-huh. individually reporting stores, maybe with an eye toward independent bookstores that they can go to and say, what I, books are you selling? I believe I've worked at one of the reporters. You can do your homework on that. Yeah. And BookScan, which you mentioned is this big data source for how many books are sold that's used widely through the publishing industry. If I wanted to try to game the system, 
And Vershbo talks about this in the piece. People that have figured out how to game it. How would I do that? Because the obvious way, right, is like, I'm going to order 10,000 copies of my own book. And that will, I'll spend a lot of money, but that will get me onto the New York Times bestseller list. Times tries to control for very obvious, crude manipulation like that. You're talking about like the, you the people that used to pay for Twitter followers, right? You should be you paid 500 bucks for 10,000 bots to follow you, and then that would push you up the algorithm. So what's um, the sly way that people try to get onto the list? Well, it's less straightforward variations of that, right? I mean, it's it just there was they talked about one sort of quote unquote marketing company that sort of did that for you, right? They would send people out to different stores in different places that just buy one or two copies of the book or order them, and and that would that would you know push it. Obviously, there's some From very legit reporting stores, right? Yeah. You go to the indie bookstore you know they use, and you say, "Oh, I'd like two Everybody's, copies of David's new book." And and when and when they start doing it, they're like, "Well, like, people are always talking about this Brian Curtis book." Um, but yeah, and then also there's the there's also very legitimate ways that people do it, right? Which is to like s encourage pre-orders because all those orders, all those pre-orders like count on day one of sales. That's why your favorite authors on Twitter encourage you to do that. And you should support your favorite authors, you know? Um, That's always funny to me and totally legitimate, as you say. But like if I go buy my friend's book two months before it comes out. That's going to be a week one thing, which will then mm -hmm. boost the numbers, which could then get them onto the bestseller list. So it's, this is not a book where it's it's out there and people are reading reviews and being like, aha, this is a good book. I want to go buy this. Or they hear their friend says, you, you should go buy this new book. It's awesome. Yeah. This is a marketing thing where you get the word out so people buy it in advance. And then it looks like or it appears like in the numbers that there's this week one cavalcade of excitement to buy the book. Yeah, and then there's people who do pretty close to what you said up top, which is like you have uh, there are instances of like the Republican National Committee or or whatever the, the various packs who will just buy tons of copies of a book of someone that they you know think tanks will buy the uh, book copies of the book that that people who work there write or whatever and and give them out as as gifts to their members or to whoever they're giving out gifts to, and I think the New York Times does their level best to sort of like account for those not being conventional sales <laughs> like donald trump jr's book yeah. yeah you know if you say if you you know the new york times is one thing you know if the book mm. says over a hundred thousand copies sold at the top of the paperback edition you can sell them any way you want you know that's what i want like the mcdonald's style sign on the top mm -hmm. of my book i don't yeah. care if it was on the new york times bestseller list i just want bulk yeah <laughs> More than one billion in print. Served. In print is the other good one because every Lord knows you print books and they don't sell. They send them right back to the distributor, and half the time they just get set on fire. You know, well, you can print a whole lot of books without selling a whole lot of them. Check out Sophie Vershbo's piece in Esquire: The Murky Path to Becoming a New York Times Bestseller. Now to a place where the numbers are always legitimate. It's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun headline. Yeah. Thursday's headline about a rattlesnake found at a top golf location was a swing and a hiss. Today's so headline comes from valued listeners Michael Solomon and David Rosenberg. It's from the New York Post. It's a story on the cover of the Post about FTX crypto guy Sam Bankman Freed. Uh huh. As you might have heard on the pod we did with Katie Baker last week, some of SBF's rumpled mystique came from his unkempt hair. David, his unkempt hair. 
What was the New York Post's strained pun headline? Um, it's got to be Maine, right? Is it Maine? No. Oh, okay. Uh, Think a little J.K. Rowling here, perhaps. What? Mop? Uh, uh, no, no. no. Right down the middle here. J.K. Rowling. Uh, Book series about her character Harry, is... Harry Potter and the... Okay, so let's play with that. Harry... Oh, Harry... Um... <laughs> I thought I was supposed to be using words that she would use for to describe hair. Um... <laughs> Harry uh, uh, Plotter. Uh, hey, that's it. Here we go. Stop the count. Harry, Harry Plotter. Plotter. Harry that's... Plotter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know, man. All right. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Eduardo Ocampo. I'm going to be back later this week. And then we've got two new episodes of the Press Box to keep you warm over the holidays. Monday, December 26th, David, will have our Year in Media podcast. Mm-hmm. Revisit all the big stories, births, deaths, everything in between. And then on Wednesday, December 28th, I want to start a new little mini franchise here at G Old Press Box. It's going to be called One Perfect Story. Oh. You know the Twitter account, One Perfect Shot, about the movies? Uh-huh. This is One Perfect Story. We pick a story that has a handy peg. And we bring the author on to tell us about how they wrote it. In this case, you'll remember 10 years ago, David, you and I were sitting in our computers when Stephen Roderick published a story in the New York Times Magazine about Lindsay Lohan and Paul Schrader Mm -hmm. making a movie called The Canyons together. Yeah. And we all read it and we're like, wait, he was on the set the whole time and saw every battle that these two people were having together? Yeah. Roderick joins me next Wednesday for one perfect story. And Shoemaker, you and I are back after the holidays with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, buddy. See you later, Ryan. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.